Good day, everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles podcast. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. As per usual, I am Dylan, and joining me today is none other than Corey Howitt. Corey, how's it going today? I'm doing good. Really excited to be on for another Scripture Chronicles Fantastic. Today is the wrap-up episode of Numbers, or as we say on the podcast, Shalom Hadios Numbers. So if you have been following along, you have noted now that we have covered every single chapter of Numbers in the main body of the podcast up to this point. So as is our custom, what we're doing today is we're going back over the entire book in one episode to give kind of a brief summary wrap-up episode, some lasting thoughts on the book before we move on to the next one. So there's not going to be a recap episode, or excuse me, there's not going to be a recap time in this episode. Uh, Instead, the whole thing is going to be a massive recap. With that, the normal spiel here, This is a podcast where we go through the Bible in real time. Our thesis that we are operating on is that the Bible is a single unified story that ultimately points to Jesus Christ. As a result, we're going through the Bible in real time, showing the story as it unfolds and hoping that you guys through that will be able to go away from this podcast with a renewed ability to Open up your Bibles, a renewed desire to open up your Bibles, read through it, see the story, and uh, be able to understand your Bibles for yourself. It's not so much about what Dylan and Corey say on the topic. Don't take our word as gospel. Instead, go and search these things out for yourself. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into today's episode. So like I said, it's the recap episode. So where else better to start than with the very name of the book itself? So in English, we call the book of Numbers the book of Numbers. And the reason for that is very clear. The very introduction is a bunch of numbers. First couple chapters deal with a census that's taken. We actually have a couple sensei, sensei, censuses, whatever the plural of census is, we have a couple of them in the book. And so as a result, it has earned the name Numbers, but that's not the Hebrew name. The Hebrew name or the original name for the book would have been Bamidbar, which again, keeping with the typical way that Jews would have named things, they named it after the very first word in the book. And so uh, that means in the wilderness. And so we start the book off in the wilderness. And that is particularly important because of the fact that We've actually been sitting at Mount Sinai now for a book and a half. So if you guys remember all the way back in Exodus, the beginning of Exodus is the Exodus event. We leave Egypt, we go through the wilderness a little bit, and then we get to Mount Sinai. When we get to Mount Sinai, that's Exodus 19, we camp there for a little bit and we get a bunch of instructions from God. And we have the people rebelling a bunch and then getting more law code, rebelling and getting more law code. And it seems to be a pattern. The entire book of Leviticus has us actually still sitting at Mount Sinai receiving law code. And in the very beginning of Numbers, it also has a sitting at Mount Sinai for the first 10 chapters. In fact, it's not until we move on from the first 10 chapters that we finally move away from the mountain. So the structure of this book, it's really interesting. Actually, if you've seen the new star Wars movies, the three new ones, it's kind of structured like the second movie in that series, the last Jedi. And so if you remember in The Last Jedi, basically the entire movie is one big travel log with kind of little stories interspersed as they're traveling. In the same vein, the book of Numbers is structured very similarly, where the entire thing is one big travel log with little stories interspersed here and there as they make their way from Mount Sinai and towards the border of the Promised Land. So really it's them traveling from Sinai towards the promised land, not entering the promised land, not yet anyway. There's a reason for that. We'll cover that a little bit later. But that's basically the structure. So that's uh, that's that. Corey, do you have anything else to say about the structure, the introduction of the book, anything like that? 
Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the new Star Wars. I think we should maybe use something like Lord of the Rings, great travel story, or something that gets little credit as a travel story, Prince Caspian. So anyways, yeah, what, what you said about the content of the book, right on, absolutely. I just wish that we used a better movie to compare it to. Sorry to the new generation that doesn't know the old Star Wars and thinks the new one's great. Good for you. Sorry if I'm raining on your parade. But I, I think there's also another way to look at the book of numbers. So one way is to look at it as a travelogue. So it's hanging out in the wilderness and then traveling, hanging out in the wilderness and traveling, where there's two travelogues that separate three wilderness destinations and, and stories throughout. Um, another way the book is broken up is, like Dylan was mentioning, and I, I think you're mentioning, maybe just before the podcast, we are talking about it, but we talked about this back in Exodus, and a little bit in Leviticus, but God would essentially, it, it seemed like he'd punish people's rebellion by giving law code. So the people rebelled on top of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, so the very next chapter, he gives them a list of laws. And that goes for a few chapters. And then there's a little story and that people rebel and then there's more laws. And so the book of Numbers is like a, a, one big book of that. So the book starts out with laws for the first 10 chapters. And then 11 through 14, there's a rebellion. Chapter 15, there's some laws. Chapter 16, Korah's rebellion. Chapters 17 through 19, more laws. Chapters 20 through 21, rebellion. And then there's this big, I don't know, like this nail that's sticking out. It's really obvious. Everyone can see it. This breaking of the pattern. And the breaking of the pattern is God blessing his people admits all the rebellion. Instead of giving more law code, he blesses. And instead of the people breaking their pattern, they go right back to their pattern of rebellion. So that's a, another way to view the book. And it's really huge to see that big, you know, break of pattern stick out like that, because that's going to be a huge part of the whole book and of understanding what is this book doing in our Bibles? What is it trying to teach us as readers? So th those are the, the two ways of which it's you know best to view the book. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I could say one is more right or more helpful than the other. They both do good at pointing out different things, I'd say. I think we should also be having in mind the continuation of what Numbers is doing from both Exodus and Leviticus. So Numbers is like um, a child of Exodus and Leviticus as far as content. So we see Numbers continuing the story of Exodus and continuing the law codes from Leviticus. And so the way we see it continuing the story of Exodus is that there were two main goals in Exodus. One, was to get to the promised land. That is the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And number two, to go worship God on Mount Sinai. Now in Exodus, they fulfilled the latter goal. They went to Mount Sinai, but they did not fulfill the first goal to go and worship God on Mount Sinai. So Exodus is, we talked about it taking big goals and, and really big problems like from Genesis, the big problem was who's going to reverse the curse? It's like, well, let's not get so carried away. Let, let's get smaller goals here. Let's just focus on not even the Messiah, not even the promise. Let's just focus on getting to this mountain. It's like, oh, that's, that's kind of a bummer. But okay, numbers now, we're going to try and focus on getting to the promised land. That is the big goal. So all the traveling has to do with getting to the promised land continuing and hopefully finishing that second goal brought up in Exodus. And then Leviticus was all about holiness, how to be holy, where we see a bunch of instructions given through law codes 
so that people can live lives pleasing to God and be people who are in his presence, um, having people who can go into his tabernacle, the place where his presence dwells. So uh, besides those two different ways to view the story, that is, you know, the, the travelogue and wilderness scenes or the laws and rebellions going back and forth, last thing I wanted to point out is we are continuing the story of Exodus and the law codes of Leviticus and Numbers is this strange yet cool mixture of the two. And so, you know, it's going back to the name of Numbers. Numbers is a super terrible, boring name. It's the worst. It does not do it justice because Numbers is this amazing book that's wrapping up these former two books really well and is so interesting. All right, so this is the book of rebellion, or if you want to keep the first name in Hebrew, it's call it the, the rebellion in the wilderness. I don't know, something like that. So, yeah, we're in for a really cool book. And so to go through the story a little bit and kind of see how it unfolds, we, I mean, you can structure it one of those two ways that Corey just talked about. And so the way that I think best to at least talk about in the short term is kind of talking about the difference between the laws, rebellion, laws, rebellion, because this is something that we introduced a long time ago. Every single time in the in the Torah where you see Israel rebel, you then see an extension of law code. And so it's kind of this interesting pattern. And Paul actually picks up on that in the New Testament, talking about the law is a curse. Well, in a certain sense, the laws are God's instructions that he gives as a result of the people's failure. And so what you can think of them as is more so something like a parent giving a child instruction. So anytime a child fails, a parent will look at their child and they'll give them instruction saying, child, this is how I want you to behave. Do it like this. And then the child will fail again and then they'll give them more instruction. Um, and that's kind of a good way to think about how the Torah as a whole functions. It's not so much like this judicial thing. Sometimes it is where God just declares guilty and the people get punished as a result. But more often than not, it's God lovingly and graciously giving them instruction, trying to bring them back to himself. And so that's how we see the book of Numbers kind of unfold. And so at the very beginning, we have this series of laws right off the bat, right in the Sinai wilderness. And so again, 1 through 10, we're sitting at Mount Sinai. Finally, we leave the mountain. Again, like I said, this is a book and a half in the making. All of Leviticus, the ending of Exodus, as well as the first 10 chapters of Numbers are all sitting at Mount Sinai. And then we get our first little section of travel log. And the first little section of travel log is particularly interesting because finally we leave Sinai. And that's in chapter 10, verse 11. We get up and we leave. And then immediately in chapter 11, the people rebel again. And so they start complaining about a wide variety of things. So in chapter 11, the people complain in the hearing of Yahweh about their misfortunes. And when Yahweh heard it, his Anger was kindled against the people. His nose grew hot. And the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of them. And so basically they start complaining about a bunch of things and Yahweh gets angry. Again, one thing we do know about Yahweh is that he is long-suffering. So I, I did point out that God is continually gracious to the people. But every now and then you do see the fact that these laws are judicial. It does get to a point where the people, when they rebel against Yahweh, they get what they deserve. In this case, they get destruction. But even in spite of this, we see that God stops. Moses intercedes for the people. And finally, God relents. Elders are appointed to aid Moses because just like we've already seen in Exodus, Moses cannot do it on his own. We see the people continue to grumble. Even still, they want meat and they're given quail as a plague. Even Miriam, Moses' own sister, as well as Aaron, Moses' brother, oppose Moses and say, who are you to lead? And so we get this crazy rebellion scene unfolding, and it kind of culminates in this scene in chapter 13. So like Corey pointed out, 
our little G goal up until this point was to get to Mount Sinai. In Exodus 3, when God's speaking to Moses, he says, the sign that you have succeeded in getting the people out of Egypt is going to be that you're going to worship God on top of Mount Sinai. So the little G goal is get to Mount Sinai. The big G goal where we really want to get, you know, Sinai is kind of a stop on the way. We want to get to the promised land. We want to get to Canaan. That's where we're going. We had that prophesied all the way back at the ending of Genesis when God says, go into Egypt and you'll be there for a time. You're going to be slaves in this foreign land, but I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to bring you back to the land of Canaan. We saw that in Genesis. We know that's where we're supposed to be. So in chapter 13 of Numbers, we finally get to the border of the promised land and the people go, okay, we're here. Let's send in spies to scope out the land to see if this is something we can do and want to do, which is already a really interesting thing to do. But it seems to have Yahweh's blessing here. Go send the spies in. And then in verse 25 of chapter 13, we have the spies come back and give the report. And now we as the reader, we're expecting a good report, a a favorable report. Yeah, it's good. It's right for the taking. Let's go get it. With Yahweh's help, we can do anything. But that's not what happens. Instead, what we see is we see the people rebel yet again. We see even the spies do not trust in Yahweh. That is all except two. Caleb and Joshua, but all of the other spies go, oh my gosh, it's so scary. There's so many big people and they're going to kill us and destroy us. And let's just not go. And so what ends up happening is the height of the people's rebellion is we're not going to trust Yahweh in order to get us back into the promised land. Instead, let's just not go in. And so that's the height of the people's rebellion. In chapter 14, we get the people rebelling yet again, all the congregation raising a loud cry and the people weeping at night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron again. And so we see just this picture unfolding of the people's constant rebellion against God and what he's wanting them to do. We've seen him already bring them out of Egypt. We've seen him bring them through the desert. We've seen them provide water for them from rocks and all assortment of other miracles, and yet the people still rebel. And so in chapter 15, we get a bunch of law code. I want to point out, though, that's not before Moses actually intercedes yet again for the people, and that's in chapter 14, verses 13 through 19, where Moses actually intercedes on behalf of the people. And it is really interesting what he says, and so I wanted to point it out. So in chapter 15, excuse me, in chapter 14, verse 15, Moses interceding on behalf of the people say, now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And I wanted to point that verse out to point out the fact that that is not what's going on here. So if you, the reader, are tempted to go, well, God's just going to kill him because he can't get him there. The people have thwarted God's plan. No. That's not what we see happening, which is very clear from the story. But this is not a matter of whether or not God can get them to do this. It's not a matter of God's sovereignty. God could get them to do whatever he wants. But instead, the people, when they rebel, elicit from God anger. God isn't just forcing his people to do this, but it's not to say that he is not able to do this. He is, as he eventually does. We will see in the story that he finally gets them into the promised land. And again, this isn't God struggling against his people, God versus his people and his people being able to thwart God's will. This is more so God wanting his people to follow his instruction. That's what the entire Torah is all about. God creating a people for himself that will follow his instruction. Unfortunately, at the end of the Torah, we're going to find out that the people just can't. They won't. They, ha- they have hard hearts. They need someone else that's going to come and change their hearts, circumcise their hearts to bring them before God. They need someone to help them. So that's really what we're looking for. But at this point, we get the people rebelling, more laws. Man, it's it's kind of a bleak, bleak outlook. So before we move on, Corey, did you have anything else to say about uh, any of that? <sighs> Man, what a bright point to put me on. Ah, just looking bleak. Things are not looking good. 
I guess you could point out the one, the one high point is Joshua and Caleb. And you, you did mention that they are the two spies who did not give a bad report. But both here in chapter 14, Caleb here is mentioned to have a different spirit. And later on, towards the end, Joshua is also mentioned to have a different spirit. And th- these two are the only men of this generation who will go into the promised land. So there is something to be said, just like what you're just ending on. We're waiting for God to circumcise the hearts of the people. And so we have these two men from this sinful generation, Joshua and Caleb, who have a different spirit than the rest of the camp. And so there's something about this spirit that God is looking for, right? And so... There's one little aspect of hope, the way in which Joshua and Caleb respond, the spirit that they have within them. It's like, okay, this is something to look forward to. And we should be tying together the idea of the spirit in people's hearts and God circumcising people's hearts. So that is the hope. And we're given a little picture of, of hope in these men. However, yeah, the people blow it. And I guess w- with that last thing, you know, the, the people send spies into the land. And it wasn't so much about just going into the land and being able to easily defeat people because they, you know, were li- right to be scared on their own power. They wouldn't have been able to do it. And so at the end of chapter 14, after God says, you know, because of your disobedience, this is why you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years because we learned in the torah that this journey is actually a really quick journey should have taken like just under two weeks and he says well because of your disobedience you will wander for 40 years a year for every day that these spies were in the promised land and so the people say oh shoot we could have won so let's go down and wage war against these people and god says don't do it it's not about the action of going and waging war. It's about following God and what he says. So I feel like this is really helpful in defining sin and finding out what's wrong with the people in the book. It's not so much that they're just not doing the things that God says, because here in chapter 14, they go and do the thing, but it's just too late now. It's just not what God desires of them anymore. Right. And so sin, you, you have to start thinking about, well, sin is just things that break relationship with God. So it's not about, you know, doing a certain thing, just like godly wisdom. Wisdom is not about a formula or the same thing of prayer or faith. It's not about some sort of formula. If I say these things, God will answer my prayers. If I do these things, I will have a good and prosperous life. It's about following God moment by moment and having faith in him. So I just wanted to point out that little spot in the story. We'll see something else like it in chapter 20. It's a few chapters away. But why don't we continue to go? So from chapter 15, we have laws about you know how to be right with God, how to make sacrifices when you sin either intentionally or really unintentionally. And within chapter 15, you have this really, I don't know, pretty gnarly judgment of this man who is out gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And the laws about the Sabbath so far are fairly vague. It says, you know, do not work on the Sabbath, but worship God and keep that day holy. And so this guy's out collecting sticks, like, well, what do we what do we do with this man? And Moses asks Yahweh, and Yahweh says, put the man to death. And the whole congregation will stone him outside the camp. And so we see this really serious punishment for something as small as breaking Sabbath, which, you know, there's, there's a whole lot to say about Sabbath and how important rest is in the eyes of God, especially for us to rest and not just relax from work, but to remember God and to worship him and remember him as holy. And so we're, we're seeing 
lots of rebellion, all sorts of rebellion, and lots of very serious judgment, because this is the start of the people, and God wants to be very clear, like, I am God, follow me. If you're not following me, it'll be clear that I am against you. So God, right away, is putting up very clear guidelines as who he is and what he's doing. I'm rewarding these people. I'm punishing these people. Uh, but then we get into the, the last part of Numbers 15, and we're, we're slowing down a bit here. We'll speed back up, but there's this really cool passage about tassels on garments. And in this section of laws, God tells Moses to speak to the people, and he tells them to make tassels on the corners of their garments and throughout all their generations, and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh to do them. Not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh your God. We saw this as something important to bring up for a couple reasons. The one that we want to bring out today, however, is for me, I, I've been writing down the main ideas of each book of the Bible to see like, okay, what's this book in particular trying to teach and how is it having its own unique voice compared to other books? And then I, I did like a kind of summary sentence of all of the Torah, so Genesis through Deuteronomy, and I, I saw that this passage right here is kind of like a a summary verse of all the Torah. What is the Torah? Well, the Torah is something to look at and to remember to not follow after our own heart, but instead to remember Yahweh and His instructions to follow after Him. And so these, these tassels are just that reminder of what the whole Torah should be. Look after God's ways, not your own, because God's ways lead to life, your way leads to death. Let this little tassel of blue just be a reminder to you. Um, anything else you want to pull out of this chapter or the tassels in particular? Honestly, there's a whole host of things that I could probably go off for another hour to talking about this it is really interesting we're going to see these tassels come back up later on in the bible as well uh the hebrew word for the tassel is tzitzit um and then the word for corner which is where the tzitzit is placed it's placed on the corner of the garment is kanaf and so we actually have a number of prophecies talking about the tzitzit or the kanaf of the garment uh particularly about the messiah and then later on in the New Testament, we have people actually grabbing the corner of Jesus's garment, grabbing onto the seat seat that he would have worn and receiving healing in line with those prophecies. So it's it's really cool, actually. I would recommend digging into that if you have some time. But uh, unfortunately, that's not the goal of today's episode. wanted to throw it out there as a little nugget so you can grab that and maybe run with it if you want. But uh, it does, as, as a general idea, really serve to sum up the point of the Torah, kind of like Corey was just saying. So it is a good section there to camp on for a second. But moving on then, we have a continuation of the pattern that we've seen going on so far. So in chapter 15, we had law code. And then in chapter 16, surprise, surprise, we have more rebellion. And so we have Korah's rebellion that's described here. So more rebellion followed by yet again, more law code. So in chapter 17, 18, and 19, we see uh, a, a section of narrative talking about Aaron's staff that ultimately buds the duties of the priests and the Levites, as well as laws for the purification of the people. So again, what we see is this pattern unfolding, law and rebellion, law and rebellion. Every time you have rebellion, you get more of these law codes. So it is a super interesting pattern that seems to stick all the way through the book. Corey, did you have anything to say about any of those chapters? I mean, it, they're such good stories, and it's so hard to just fly by them. I, I guess one thing I think we might have said in earlier episodes on numbers is that 
I feel like in Numbers, the rebellions usually are some question to God's holiness or how God has revealed his holiness. So like Korah's rebellion, Miriam and Moses's, or sorry, Miriam and Aaron's rebellion, they're all asking, well, who put Moses in charge? I was like, well, one, Yahweh chose him. And then two, you guys literally asked that he would be your only person to hear from God and speak to you. You chose him as God's prophet when you could have all likely have been prophets. So we see that there, there's a close tie between the rebellions and the laws given. It's like, oh, you had a question about God's holiness? Well, here's some instructions about holiness and also about how they can be purified. Oh, you, you've been, you know, sinning and made impure. Well, here's how you get back into God's rightness. Here's how to be made righteous. So it's pretty cool that those things tie together and that God's always inviting people back in. So although the, the law code isn't a code that will last, that will work, that's it's not a perfect code by any means, but even the law code is a means of grace to let people back in after rebellion. And except for Korah and his people, they don't get a second chance. God swallows them up in the earth. But anyways, chapter 20 and 21, we get more rebellion. And these rebellions are really big ones um, and really key to the story. So from the beginning of the book, we see the people rebel. And then we see Moses' own uh, siblings rebel. And then someone from the tribe of Levi, Korah, some of his men, they're not in Aaron's tribe, but another tribe nearby. So they are Levites with other duties, not serving in the tabernacle, but still important. Uh, so you have all sorts of everyone complaining, rebelling. And the start of chapter 20, the people rebel at this place where they rebelled that actually back in the book of Exodus. So same place, the waters of Meribah. And in this place of rebelling, this is where Moses actually rebels. So God tells Moses to speak to the rock that he may bring water out of it. However, what Moses does, because back in, I, I think it's Exodus chapter 17, Yahweh told Moses, strike the rock once and water will come out. But in Numbers 20, speak to the rock. So what Moses does, instead of speaking to the rock, he speaks to the people. And his tone with the people is just so fed up. He's so over these people. And he says, here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And we're thinking like, we? And what is the we you're bringing up? Is this you and Yahweh or you and Aaron, because uh, one of the great rebellions of the people is not regarding God as holy and oftentimes blaming Moses as being their leader. He's just the physical human leader. Is Moses also buying into just the physical human leaders that he has some powers because, you know, he's the one on display. The invisible God cannot be seen. And so whatever the we is, this is not looking good because he's taking some credit. And after he speaks to the people instead of the rock, he goes to the rock and he strikes the rock twice. And in this rebellion of Moses, surprisingly, God still provides water. It's some amazing grace from God to still provide water, not just to let them thirst to their deaths. But they're given water, enough for all the people, all the livestock. In verse 12, Yahweh says to Moses and Aaron, Because you do not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So now we see that Moses, he is no longer invited into the land. We're maybe figuring Aaron was also out for his many rebellions already. But yeah, we see the leader of the people fall himself. And the, the big fall, like the last sin I, I brought out, is, has to do with faith. So it's not like, hey, you didn't do what I said. The action is like a symptom of the sin. Sin is truly lacking faith. And so something that we see throughout the Bible is that 
the opposite of sin is not good works. Otherwise, people could just do good and be saved. But the opposite of sin is faith. And truly, sin is lacking faith in God. So when we lack faith in God, that is sinning, we're pulled away from him, we do stupid things, say stupid things, think stupid things, because we don't truly believe in him. We don't truly believe that he is holy or the best thing. And that's what Moses is told by God. You didn't believe in me. You didn't uphold me as holy. And so he did not bear the name of God well. And we're seeing all sin boil down to this. The people just don't believe in God and therefore act on their lack of faith. And so from the very beginning, from Genesis and even here in Numbers, sin is simply having in faith other than God. People are saved by having faith in God. Maybe that looks like sacrificing an animal, not because the animal saves them, but because God said it. So by believing in God, they do that action. So that's just something big and theological to point out about sin, salvation, all it has to do with faith. And I think this is another really great passage to show it. And later on in this passage, Aaron ends up dying. So Moses still has a little bit longer to lead the people. Right away after this rebellion, Aaron dies and he's buried there out in the wilderness and things are really looking bleak. Anything you want to say before we move on? No, nothing really that you haven't already covered. Uh, it is just crazy. So the other high point of rebellion was the spies in the wilderness. Remember our big G goal, get into the promised land. Well, that is squashed as soon as the people rebel. As soon as the people say, nope, we can't go in. Yahweh says, okay, fine. You're not going in. No one in this generation is going in, like Corey already pointed out, except Joshua and Caleb. And presumably maybe Moses, until Moses himself rebels. And so, like I said, this is really just the book of rebellion, constant rebellion, all the way to the point where even Moses, the leader of these people, rebels himself. And so we kind of continue on this theme of rebellion. We see the death of Aaron himself. And so Aaron, being Moses' brother, dies. He's judged as a result for what he has done in the various rebellions that he's been a part of. I mean, he was the guy who built the golden cow, etc. And so he dies without getting into the promised land. And then in chapter 21, we have this really interesting story. So again, the people continue to rebel. And then we get this story of the bronze serpent. So from verse four of chapter 21, it says from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Yet again, the people being impatient and the, uh, the people spoke against God and against Moses. There it is yet again, another rebellion. Why have you brought us up out of, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Okay, so again, like I said, it's generally the case that you see rebellion and then instruction, law code. This is how you should live. Rebellion, instruction, law code. But that being said, when the people rebel against God, anytime God doesn't smite them, anytime God doesn't give them the punishment that they deserve, God is being gracious. God is being merciful, which is it's a really interesting concept because oftentimes we today, whenever someone gets justice by God for what they did, this idea of, oh, how could a loving God, you know, send someone to hell or judge them for what they've done? Well, the truth of the matter is that's justice. That's what we deserve based on our actions. And the same thing is true here. That is what the people deserved based on their actions. That is justice. What God gives when he doesn't give justice is mercy and grace. It's undeserved. The people don't deserve it, but God gives it because God is a gracious God. And so same thing for us. You know, anytime we don't end up in hell, anytime we are saved, God is gracious. That's amazing. And so anytime we are you know saved anytime we see someone be saved even when we're thinking about our own salvation we should go praise god that he didn't give me what i deserve because i deserved hell same thing with the people but 
what we see here is them getting justice for what they did. God sends fiery serpents, but it doesn't end there. It's not just God sends fiery serpents and kills the people off. No, instead, God even makes a way for the people to come out of this plague that he gives. So he tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and to put it up on a pole. And anybody who looks upon this bronze serpent is spared of this plague. And interestingly, this is a connection that is brought out by the New Testament authors to Jesus Christ. And so we get this really interesting messianic illusion here. And one thing I wanted to point out with these messianic illusions, because there's going to be another one that we're going to touch on soon as well, and that is the fact that these messianic illusions are intentional. That is that the Old Testament authors, particularly the author of the Torah, put these here with the intention of them referencing Messiah. It's not as though the New Testament uh, writers came and then they pulled things out of context and just completely said something different than what the Old Testament authors were saying or what the Torah author was saying. No, instead, what they did is they just grabbed what the, the author of the Torah, in this case Moses, what Moses said and put it into their writings. And so this is intentionally referring to Messiah. And it's such an interesting connection here. The serpent representing, well, what does the serpent represent? Sin, Genesis, you know, sin being held up on a pole. Now, and anybody who looks on this figure that has become sin is spared. Well, that's the exact same connection we get and Jesus on the cross, you know, Jesus being lifted up on the cross, becoming sin for us and being judged on behalf of us for what would have been our sin, because he didn't have any. So all of our sin thrust upon him and then him dying as a result. And anybody who looks upon him is saved. Same same sort of illusion here. So uh, a very messianic image that we're going to see come across. It's really interesting. I mean, this isn't just my theory here, but I would posit that you can read through the Old Testament and you can get the Messiah and the Messiah crucified for sin just by reading the Old Testament. It's all there. And so, again, that's not just my theory there. There's a ton of other scholars that are far brighter than myself that have all posited the same thing. But anyway, uh, Corey, did you want to see anything about that? Yeah, super important. And if you want to see more of the Messiah in the Old Testament, well, let's just keep going. And so we see the big break of pattern in Numbers. And the break of pattern, that is the pattern of law and rebellion. So Moses and the people just rebelled, like just some of the worst rebellion stories, but then some really cool stories and seeing of how God remedies the situation. Um, in chapter 22, we're expecting more law code, but all of a sudden, we're taken out of the camp of Israel completely. And we know that they're going to have to go through Moab. In fact, their journey is going through the wilderness of Moab. And they're trying to get to that land and get through the land. There's a king of that land named Balak. Balak sees this great nation of people come in. He doesn't know about all of their woes and rebellions and how God has threatened to kill them off a couple times already. He sees them and sees that they have a powerful God and he's scared. So he hires this sorcerer, Balaam, says, curse these people for me. And it is in these curses from Balaam that God turns to blessing. And keep in mind... God's covenant with Abraham, uh, those who bless you, I'll bless, those who curse you, I'll curse. And God, instead, this time, he takes intended curses and turns them into blessings for his people. But then he'll go ahead and curse these people trying to curse them, even though they're not even successful. And so Balaam, this man who lives in just utter opposition to the ways of Yahweh, he cannot help but be the mouthpiece of Yahweh and speak blessings. And as he is speaking of the people of Israel, he says things like, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom Yahweh has not denounced? And so I was like, okay, 
cool. Like he's just going to go ahead and bless them and things are going to go well for them. But it doesn't just stay at that level of this people in this generation in the wilderness right now, they're, they're going to be doing well. No, as a matter of fact, he starts thinking about the future and we'll see that really clearly in just a second. But in chapter 23, verse 21, he, God, has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. Yahweh, their God, is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Now, there's no king of Israel yet. God brings them out of Egypt, and Israel, like them, the horns of the wild ox. Okay, the the horn of an animal. That's like stuff we've seen from Genesis 49, the messianic promise to Judah. And in fact, that's directly quoted down in verse 24. Behold the people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts, lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And that Behold a people. That's actually something singular. So behold this person. Watch out for this person who is like a lioness. Well, who's like a lioness? Oh, yeah. Genesis 49. This is a direct quote of the messianic promise of this strong character who is going to judge the nations, the Messiah. And in chapter 24... If you're not totally sure, well, is this really the Messiah? Is he just taking imagery from the Messiah and talking about all of Israel, which some people like to say? He says something similar down in chapter 24, verse 8. God brings him out of Egypt. Okay, no longer the people, but him. He brings him out of Egypt and is for like him the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Okay, blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. We got the Abrahamic blessing and the Judah blessing all together. But what really ties us all together is being really clear about the Messiah, if that wasn't enough already, is in chapter 24, verse 14, Balaam is saying, Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. So all of a sudden, you know, we might think of the Torah being about, oh, this past very ancient event. But now when we see this phrase, Ba'aharim Yom, this phrase in the latter days, this is almost always talking about in the last days, in the end times. So uh, the fancy theological word for this is eschatology, the study of the end times. So yeah, all of a sudden we're talking about the eschaton. So is the Torah about the ancient past or the future? Well, actually, when we have seen big chunks of poetry so far in the Torah, we've seen that they have often looked forward into the future, like the end times future. And a, a couple places we have seen this is after God creates everything, he creates woman from man, and he gives us great beautiful poetry, which Paul says, oh yeah, this is clearly about Christ and the church. This is not just about marriage in and of itself. Marriage has always been pointing to something greater. And it's very plain meaning itself. It's always pointing to Christ in the church, God's plan for redemption. Well, that's crazy. And it's not just that place there. The whole book of Genesis is mostly narrative. And then there's poetry at the end. We already talked about that poetry being about, well... At the end, we'll see this character from the tribe of Judah who will judge all the nations in the end times. The book of Exodus, you'll get this bits of narrative, and then we'll see poetry break out like when the people cross the Red Sea 
and they start talking about coming to God and a holy mountain, a lot of people look at this and say, you know, this doesn't seem to be simply Mount Sinai. It seems to be a mountain of God's salvation. And salvation did not come from Sinai. Instead, it comes from Zion. And so, I mean, every time we see this um, similar pattern of narrative, big block of narrative with some poetry, and then there's usually an epilogue at the end. It's usually talking about something beyond something later. Oh, and something also left out in the first three chapters of Genesis, the third chapter being the rebellion. At the start of that poetry, we see God promising the Messiah. So this pattern will continue, and it'll continue into Deuteronomy, where we'll see it on the whole of the Torah. So not just in parts of Genesis, parts of Exodus, or like whole books like it's doing in Genesis and Numbers. We're going to see it in all of the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And we'll get to that in the coming episodes. But what I do want to point out here is that Balaam says this is going to happen in the latter days. So not just going to happen pretty soon to your people. This has a much greater vision for the future. And so verse 17, it's very clear that he's talking about something great in the future. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So that king in the camp that he heard. Well, that king is coming, but he's not here yet. And then he says, a star shall come out of Jacob. This prophecy is talked about a lot in Revelation, the bright morning star. I guess Revelation and Matthew. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Oh, yeah, that same scepter, Genesis 49. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. And it talks about taking out all of these enemies around him to where we see, okay, it has to do with Israel's enemies, but in a much bigger scale, it's talking about the Messiah from Judah, that king figure, and his enemies. And so is numbers about events in the past or is it about the future well all these past events they're stories that are teaching us something but are also pointing us to the break in the pattern of the whole book they're pointing us to the prophecies of balaam and how balaam is pointing forward to talking about this king from the tribe of judah who will judge the nations and judge his enemies and so by amount of content, is numbers all about the future? No, but we've seen this before when we see poetry and something that one of my professors, Ray Lubeck, talked about is these theology portions, something that his professors, said, their professors talked about. They, they called these sections of poetry in the Pentateuch, or the Torah, um, HDT, which they call heavy-duty theology. So these poetry sections are really major to look out for. And in the whole scheme of the book and the Torah, these poetry sections are to stick out really big to catch our attention and say, okay, this is really the focus here. Not that the other parts of the book are not important. They clearly have had tons to teach us. But... We're seeing now that these are setting up a pattern only to break the pattern in the poetry to set our eyes onto the Messiah. Or in this case, he's not even called the anointed one yet. The Messiah is some king amongst the people who comes from Judah who is not there yet. Okay, so at least we know there will be a king. Balaam promises that. And that is the hope that we have amidst rebellion and getting a bunch of laws. So this is like a great high point of the book, looking to way in the future. Um, before we go back down to the level of what the rest of Numbers is like, rebellion and being dragged through the mud. Dylan, anything else we should point out here? 
No, honestly, that was a absolutely great wrap up of that pause section. So I'm not going to say anything more about that specifically because I think Corey hit it on the head. The rest of the book of numbers after that point is really interesting. I mean, we see kind of this consistent theme once again of rebellion and more law code given yet again. And so we get right back into that same pattern that we were in. So again, the break in the pattern points to what's important. The important things that I wanted to bring back up after that break in the pattern are we have this interesting point where Joshua is going to succeed Moses. And the reason I wanted to point that out, why that's important is we're going to see after the book of Deuteronomy, once we're finished with the Torah, Joshua is going to become a key figure that is going to lead the people. So even Moses failed, but God has not abandoned his people. He's given them a new leader. Something's going to come of that. So keep that in the back of your mind, that little nugget. We'll get back to that. Other than that, I also wanted to point out in chapter 31, we get this really interesting sort of thing where the narrative kind of picks back up where it left off, where we saw in Moab, in the wilderness in Moab, the people sin with the Midianites. And then in chapter 31, we get the Midianites judged for the way in which they have made the people sin. We also see Balaam himself be killed and judged for what he did. And so if you had any doubts in your mind whether or not Balaam himself was a good character or not, it's really cemented in the fact that he is ultimately judged for the way in which he made the Israelites sin in that incident when they sinned with the Midianites. And so he's judged for that. He's not a good character. And yet God still utilized him for God's purposes. And so we've seen that idea before. Jacob is a prime example, not a good character, not a good guy, and yet God utilizes him. So we see Balaam ultimately be judged after that. We see Reuben and Gad, two Israelite tribes, and also the half-tribe of Manasseh, not even want to enter the promised land at all because, hey, this side looks nice. And so Moses gets angry at them for that. Finally, we get this recount of Israel's journey so far. And that's where the book ends. It's just like, okay, so here's where Israel has traveled. Here's what Israel has done. And right before they enter the promised land, we're kind of left on a cliffhanger. Okay, so now what? We're left with the people sinning and rebelling. So we know that at the very least, the generation that denied going into the promised land the first time with the spies, they're going to die out. And Moses himself is rebelled and he is not going to be able to enter the promised land. So now what? What are we going to do? And so that's the cliffhanger that is not going to really be answered in the next book. <laughs> so keep that in the back of your mind because we'll actually, in the next book, when we get into the book of Deuteronomy, we'll, uh, we'll kind of see how that doesn't really get answered. Corey wanted to jump in here as well. So go ahead, Corey. Yeah, just with that that cliffhanger of going into the land and taking out the inhabitants, there, there's one major bit of instructions given at the end of chapter 33. We hit on this in our last episode that we recorded, but just to remind you guys, if you guys did not even hit that episode, at the end of chapter 33, the instructions for going into the land is make sure that you destroy and drive out every single inhabitant. For those that you do not drive out, they will be thorns in your side. And they will just be this tremendous burden to you. So go ahead and wipe them all out. And this goes back to Genesis chapter 15. God says, I cannot give you the promised land right now, Abraham. I need to wait for those inhabitants of that land to become wicked enough to judge. So it's we should know that these people are wicked enough. They deserve this judgment. It's not just God saying, well, my people are more important. Goodbye. That's not it at all. These people are deserving judgment, and Israel is being given the duty of judging these nations. And so, will they do it right? Well, what is right? Well, they need to totally wipe out these people. So that is the criteria in which we will judge the Israelites by when they go to take out the land. But yes, we will not hit that until Joshua. So the, a great link of books is between Joshua and Numbers. The whole second half of the book of Joshua is simply like counting the people and land allotments. Like, what is this about? It's like, well, it's 
because that's what was laid down in John. Sorry, that's what was laid down in the book of Numbers. And so Deuteronomy, what are we going to do from there? Well, we're going to kind of take a step back in our expectations, which I feel like that's what Numbers causes you to do. All right, let's take back our expectations of the story. But also, besides just the story, what do we take away from the book of Numbers? What it's the eternal, timeless truths that the biblical authors are trying to share with us, the readers. Well, one, I mean, clear as day, we see lots of rebellion. And so by seeing this very clear rebellion against God, who is clearly working, we see that, well, life is much better if you don't rebel. However, by that one spot that sticks out, the parts where Balaam prophesies about the coming king from the tribe of Judah, the curse reverser, we see that God is faithful amidst the rebellion of his people. And he even is faithful to save his people despite their rebellious nature. So let me say that again. God is faithful to save his people despite their rebellious nature. And that's really huge. I mean, we kind of get that from the other books, but by the time we get through numbers, like, man, God just has to wipe his hands with these people and get rid of them. But no, that's just not the character of God. Numbers has something really valuable to teach us about the character of God and, of course, about ourselves, not just, oh, those Israelites are really terrible. No, when we are faithless, which we will be, we often are. When we are faithless, God is faithful to forgive and to continue to work despite our sins. Um, I uh, interned under this pastor for a while who would often say, if God didn't have our mistakes to work with, he wouldn't have anything to work with. And I was like, ah, that's funny. As I get older, I'm like, wow, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's really true. So those are like the, the big takeaways of the book. What were the timeless shared truths from this book? Um, Dylan, anything else on uh, takeaways, wrap-ups? I mean, honestly, we've hit on a lot of things already as we went through the wrap-up. Um, and so, I mean, any number of those things, I think that overall the book of Numbers will show us a bunch of different things, but primarily it shows us that God is merciful, that God is a gracious God, in spite of the rebellion of his people, he continues to preserve a remnant of his people to bring about the Messiah so that his people can be brought back to him. Because again, the whole biblical conflict is whose wisdom are you going to choose, God's or your own? And ultimately, humans choose their own every single time. And so the problem is humans have a hard heart. They will not choose God. And so God then needs to go and bring them up to himself. And so that's exactly what he does in Jesus Christ. That's exactly what the Messiah is for. And so we already see in the book of Numbers, the people just unable to do it. We're going to get this idea fleshed out even more in the book of Deuteronomy. But just the people have a hard heart. They need a Messiah to save them. And so that would be probably my main takeaway from the book of Numbers Other than that, we'll probably go ahead and wrap up there. We've been going for a little while now. And so this bids shalom adios to the book of Numbers. That's the the end of it. Again, the purpose of this podcast is not to give you guys all of the answers. It's not to let you guys know what Dylan and Corey think. Instead, it's to get you guys to think about the text yourself. Go back read through the book of Numbers on your own and come up with your own conclusions, come up with your own thought process, utilize the process that we've employed in this podcast to understand the scriptures for yourself. That's really what this is designed to do, not just rely on Dylan and Corey as commentators thinking that we know everything. That's definitely not the case. At least I'm not under any delusions that I uh, I know everything. So That being said, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you guys do enjoy the podcast, please do leave a positive review wherever you listen. That is immensely helpful to the podcast. It helps get it into other people's hands so that they can be blessed by it just as you've been blessed by it. iTunes is definitely the big one there. Also, if you guys did not already know this, even though I say at the end of every podcast, we have a website, www.thebibleispod.com. 
the Bible's a podcast. That's not, no. Let me try that one more time. The website is actually www.thebibleisastory.com. There we go. That's the real one. Go there. Check it out. We got good stuff there. YouTube channel, blog, etc. Corey's actually got another blog coming out. So check out that um, once that comes out. Other than that, email address is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. Chat with us. We're both lonely. And if you want to help out the show, you can donate to it on the website by clicking on that donate tab. Thank you guys again for tuning into the show. I hope you guys learned about numbers. I hope you guys can utilize this information in your own Bible study. And with that, Shalom, Shalom. Adios. Adios.